0: Question for you. Have you seen God at work this week in your life? Have you seen him at work around you? Um, Sometimes, uh, in my life at least, I'm prone to miss that if I'm not careful. If I don't take some specific steps in order to pay attention and be alert, I may miss the places where God's at work around me. This past week, we had an incredible privilege of being able to see, as you saw the video earlier, 35 individuals baptized at the beach this past week. A great reminder of God's work in our midst. It was a picture of God drawing people to himself, those who are far from God, helping them find new life in Christ and their public proclamation that they are now followers of Jesus. What a great picture of God at work. Some of those folks were from the Kempstle location. Some of those of you were from the Volvo location. And what a great opportunity to be able to see both of these locations, seeing God at work in our midst. Again, if I'm not careful, I may miss that. Sometimes it's because I'm focused on my own agenda. It's because I'm thinking about me and I'm thinking about what I think is important. And I may rush off into my day without pausing and taking the time to really begin to reflect on what it is that God's doing and where he's at work around me. Sometimes I'm just self-focused. I'm in too big of a hurry. And that means I need to slow down. One of the tools that we provided as a church to help us in that journey of maybe slowing down a bit is the journal I mentioned a moment ago. I hope you have this already. I hope you've picked up your copy. And I hope it's not collecting dust on your shelf. But each day you're picking it up and you're spending some time reading the text. And you're beginning to make some journal notes about your observations about what God is saying It will help you in that journey of recognizing uh, some places that God is at work. It's going to help you and uh, strengthen your own walk with God. But if we don't take those kind of intentional steps, I just want to remind you there are other times and moments when God's at work. And if we are attentive to that, uh, or if we're not necessarily attentive to that, sometimes God will use these moments to help get our attention. They include things like hardships, suffering, difficulties that we encounter in our life, and even injustices that we may endure, things that should not be happening to us because we did no wrong, and yet we somehow find ourselves suffering. And it's in those moments that we might be tempted to say, I don't think God's at work anywhere around here. I don't even—I mean, I think God's abandoned me. But you know, the truth is that the Word of God would affirm just the opposite of that. The Word of God would affirm that God often does some of his greatest work, and some of his best work in the midst of those hardships and difficult times. Uh, The writer of James says that we should count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Why? Because in those moments, God is likely working to do something pretty significant in our lives. Well, Jesus is the one who affirmed this idea that God is at work. John 5, 17, he makes it very clear that he says, my father has been working and continues to be working even until now. God is at work in our world. He doesn't just create this world and fling it out here to be on its own. Uh, He is present here with us, and he is at work in this world. He's drawing people to himself. He's accomplishing his purposes. The Apostle Paul would affirm the same idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, where he says that uh, all things work together for good for those who love God. He's saying that God is the one who works those things together and actually brings something good together, even out of life's hardships and difficulties. He said he does that for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purposes. Important for us to recognize that God is at work around us. In our generation, probably it was Henry Blackaby, the pastor, author of Experiencing God, that made this idea most popular when he describes these seven realities about God. One of those is that God is always at work around me. And as a follower of Christ, it is my responsibility to observe and to see where God is at work. And that becomes my invitation to join him in that process. Well, today, I believe that God has uh, for us uh, an opportunity to see more clearly where he is at work and how he is at work in the world around us. I read a book recently uh, by a young man named Ben Malcolmson. And the book is called Walk On. And It's a story about his life and it's fascinating to me because he got this idea that God was at work. He understands this even as a young man. Ben was a college student at the University of Southern California. He was a journalism major, seemed to be kind of on the fast track to a very effective journalistic career. He was working for the school newspaper, and he was assigned to the sports section of the school paper. He decided that he was going to take advantage of an opportunity that was provided each year at USC. At that time, Pete Carroll was the head coach of the USC Trojans and he offered an opportunity each year for college students who had an interest in doing so to make their effort in walking onto the team. They would host an extended series of tryouts, and these people would go through this regimen of being evaluated, and some of those men would be chosen to be on the football team as walk-ons. Ben thought... A great angle for a story would be for him to go through that journey. He thought, well, I'm going to go through this process as if I'm walking onto the team, and then I'll write a story from the inside about the experience of doing that. Much, much to his surprise, when the roster was posted, his name appeared on the roster. Ben made the team. He had no intention of making the team. He just wanted to write a great story. He said that after he came to realize that this was not some kind of joke that one of his friends was playing on him somehow, this really was the real deal. He had made the team. He said that he fell to his knees and he just recognized in this moment that God was at work in this situation. And he said it was as if God made clear to him that, he said, Ben, there's a greater purpose in your being here. This is not about a one-column article written one time to be read by a few people and forgotten about. There is something much bigger going on here. I want you to hear what he writes near the end of the book. And he says, Even when your life reaches its bleakest point and you face seemingly insurmountable obstacles or circumstances, God has plans that you would not even believe even if he told you. He took a skinny newspaper reporter who hadn't played football since the fifth grade and he placed him on the nation's top-ranked football team only to get seriously injured. He would battle back through rehab, get in for one play, aim to find a God-given purpose and struggle with the death of a teammate and eventually discover four years later the fulfillment of an utterly amazing calling in his life. Now, it took him four years to figure out what that greater purpose was. But you see, he got it. And throughout the book, as I continue to read, it was clear that he was saying that he understood that as he went through these hardships and difficulties, God kept reminding him that there was a purpose. Kept reminding him that he was at work accomplishing something bigger that he didn't really fully understand see, when we understand that God is at work around us and when we understand the purpose that God has for us, even in difficulties, even in hardships, it can allow us to have the fuel and the strength to continue to endure difficult times because we recognize where God is at work. Well, it reminded me as I read the story, I could not help but think about this message today of, of the parallels between Ben Malcolmson's life and the life of Joseph. So if you've got your Bible, open it to Genesis chapter 37. And What I'm going to ask you to do is just walk with me. Pastor Eric gave me an assignment to do the story of Joseph. I appreciate him giving me a short text. It's only 13 chapters, okay? So we're gonna go from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. And I'm not gonna read it all to you, okay? So I'm gonna try to summarize that for you in a way I hope that you'll remember it. And so I want you just to turn the pages of your Bible. I'll reference a few different places and you'll be looking at this story as I tell you what happened. Last week, Pastor Eric was speaking about uh, Abraham and the covenant that God made with him in Genesis 12. He said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the earth through you. It is through you, through your lineage, Abraham, that all the earth will be blessed. Those that bless you, I will bless, and those that curse you, I will curse. Abraham and his wife did not have children, you recall. And at about age 100, Sarah gave birth to the son of promise, Isaac. Isaac would later marry and have children, and one of his sons would be named Jacob. Jacob uh, would then become the father of 12 sons, Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. And sometimes we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. We're talking about the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph was number 11 out of 12 of those sons. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Uh, And he gave him a tunic, Or your version may say, a coat of many colors. I'm going to use six words to describe Joseph's life. They all start with the letter P. Hope you'll hold on to these, okay? First, I want to say to you that Joseph was privileged. And by privileged, I'm saying that he was this favorite son of his father. Now, this is not an advocation for child favoritism. I would say to you, if anything, it's just the opposite. It's not a really good strategy for rearing your children to pick a favorite. But in this case, Jacob did, and he favored him. And the way he did that was he showered him with this coat, the Bible says a coat of many colors, and it was a coat that would remind uh, his brothers of this favor. So his father gave him this really, really, really flashy coat. Uh, I don't know if it looked like this or not, but it might have looked something like this. Scholars tell us that this coat probably went all the way to the ground and it had big long sleeves on it and would have maybe even resembled some element of royalty. It's said to his brothers that, hey, this guy's not going to have to work like the rest of you. He's going to be different from you. He is the favored one. One pastor said it was like his father shopped for Joseph at Nordstrom and at the Walmart clearance rack for the other brothers. You know, there was a real difference he made here. Well, the Bible says that these brothers grew to hate Joseph. Uh, They were envious. They were jealous of the way he was treated. One day his father sent Joseph out to check on his brothers who were tending the sheep. And so he was making his way out and his brothers spotted him from a long ways off. How in the world do you think they knew it was Joseph? Hey, good chance this bright coat made him stand out not blend in. They knew who it was. These guys put together this scheme. They planned on how they could... End uh, some things that Joseph wanted to do. For you see, God had given Joseph uh, another sense of privilege. God had given Joseph an insight into the future. God had given Joseph a gift of understanding some things that he was going to be doing. And he did it through dreams. Joseph had this dream and and in his uh, excitement about this awareness of this gift that God had given him, not really fully knowing how to use this gift that God had given him, he blurts out to his brothers, hey, you're not gonna believe I had this great dream. All of you guys, even mom and dad, bow down to me. Is that great or what? Well, his brothers don't seem to think that's such a great idea. It says that they hated him all the more. So when they saw him coming, it was in this moment of jealousy that they decide that they're going to bring this dream to an end. They're going to be the dream killers. Uh, they're going to take his life. So they strip him of his coat. Reuben, one of his brothers, steps up and says, hey, let's don't kill him. Let's throw him in one of these pits here. So they threw him in a pit and they took his coat. The Bible says that they tore it and they dipped it in goat's blood and they took it to his father and said, hey, is this the, is this the robe that belongs to Joseph? Joseph. Of course, he said, yes, that's my son's robe. And they said, well, he must have been attacked by a wild animal and killed. But we found this. His father Jacob is grieving over the loss of this favored son, saddened by what's happened in his life. While he thinks he's dead, Joseph is very much alive. You see, he's not privileged in that sense any longer. He's now in a pit out in the desert. Well, his brothers, while he's in that pit before they actually took that coat to his dad, uh, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders came through and that caravan of traders made their way uh, near them and the brothers decided, you know what we can do? We can sell Joseph as a slave. So for 20 pieces of silver, these 10 brothers sell their 11th brother to these Ishmaelite traders. They in turn sell him to a high-ranking government official, a man by the name of Potiphar, And so Joseph, on this journey, he moves from being an individual of privilege to going to this pit. Now he's on his way to the palace. This individual recognizes something special about Joseph. As this government official and living in this palace, he says that Joseph is a man of integrity. And he looks at him. The Bible says that God was with Joseph and that God blessed the work of his hands. And Potiphar noticed this. And he put Joseph in charge of all of his household gave him complete control. He made him the steward of his house. He was in charge of all of his possessions. Everything was going well in that role. Joseph's back on top. Even though he's a slave, he's got some authority and some power until Mrs. Potiphar shows up. Potiphar's wife shows up, and she has an eye for this young Hebrew slave. She desires him for herself. The Bible says that she makes certain advances toward him, Not once, not twice, but day after day after day. It's a great picture of the integrity of this man who continues to resist the temptation of this one who would give herself to him. That's what she wanted to do, and he resisted. One day he arrived at work, and he got to the household, and the house was empty except for Mrs. Potiphar. She was the only one there. The Bible says that she grabbed him and pulled him to herself. And in so doing, Joseph fled that moment. He ran away, and his cloak was torn off of him. She's holding it in her hand, and in that moment, she too becomes a schemer. She becomes one that schemes and puts together a plan for the destruction of this young man. She's not going to be scorned by his rejection. She tells her husband, Potiphar, that young Hebrew slave you brought in here tried to take advantage of me. He ultimately sends him now to prison. Joseph finds himself in prison for something that he did not do. It was not um, what he had done. It was what he had not done. And so in this moment, Joseph, uh, we learned something else about him. The Bible says that, again, God was with him while he was in this prison. And God's hand of favor was on him, and he gave him favor with the chief warden. The chief warden saw these things in Joseph and said, I'm going to put you in charge of all the prisoners here in the prison. It was there he would meet two additional men. He met the butler, and he met the baker that had formerly worked for Pharaoh. Both of them, we don't know why they were in prison, but they were there. And in the course of their meeting, they told him their story about some dreams that they had had. Each of them had had a dream, and in their dreams, they could not understand what they meant. Joseph shares with them that the interpretation, the understanding of dreams, belongs to God. He will do what he can to help them. He tells the first the meaning of his dreams that he's going to be restored to his place of service. The other hears a good report and he says, hey, what does my dream mean? And when he asked him that, Joseph, again, a man of integrity, tells him the truth. He said, your dream means in three days you'll be executed. Both of those dream interpretations did indeed come true. Joseph asked for one thing of the butler. He said, do me a favor, remember me when you get back into Pharaoh's court. That chapter of Genesis ends by saying that the butler forgot about Joseph. Here he is still in this prison, unremembered, until one day there's another dreamer. Pharaoh has two dreams. And in these dreams, he's troubled by them. He cannot understand what these dreams mean. And the butler remembers, there was a young Hebrew slave that told me what my dream meant once. Pharaoh brings Joseph out of the prison, and he begins talking with him about his dreams Joseph says to him again that dreams, the understanding, the meaning of dreams belongs to God, but he'll do what he can to help. God reveals to Joseph what these dreams mean and what the dreams meant were that Egypt was about to have seven years of plentiful harvest, but they would be followed by seven years of severe drought and famine. And it was going to be important to store up and to prepare for these years of little Pharaoh recognizes something about Joseph. He recognizes that God's hand is upon this man. He says to him, you have the wisdom of God. And as one who has the wisdom of God, I want to make you the prime minister. And so now he goes from the prison to being the prime minister over all of Egypt. Now to make a very long story much shorter, I will say to you that the famine began to touch the land in Canaan where Joseph's family lived. His father sent his 10 brothers back and forth on a couple of occasions and a lot of things happened in the midst of this until ultimately uh, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. When they first come to him, they don't recognize who he is, but he clearly understands who they are. And those 10 brothers find themselves kneeling before Joseph, asking for grain. Now Joseph has become the provider for his family in that moment, Joseph extends forgiveness to his brothers for what they've done. And there is great reunion. Seventy members of their family move from Canaan down to Egypt, and they are provided for during this famine. God has provided for the Egyptian people, and he's provided for these 70 Hebrews. And it is through them that ultimately there would be a line of individuals that would lead to the birth of the Messiah. You see, God made good on his promise to Abraham that through Abraham... All the nations of the world would be blessed. Jacob dies in chapter 49, the father of Joseph. Jacob spent the last 17 years of his life with Joseph in Egypt. And when he dies, chapter 50 tells us that the brothers become a little frightened. They're not quite sure what's going to happen. They're fearful, perhaps, that their brother has only been kind to them because of their father's presence. Joseph says to them, Am I in the place of God? I am not. He says, look, verse 20 says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph recognized that God was at work around him. You see, in so many ways, our lives really are like a puzzle. The puzzle piece that you've got that I handed out to you earlier, I hope those of you at Volvo got all your puzzle pieces. If you've got those, I want you to take it for just a moment. I want you to look at it, and I want you to tell me, what is the picture in this puzzle? What's the big picture? Oh, that's right. You can't do that. You see, we can't take just an individual isolated moment and be able to understand the bigness of what this really is a significant piece of. You might have something that gives you a hint. My piece is completely blue. It doesn't tell me really anything. You see, without the box top, it's, it's impossible for me to make sense of this. And the same is true with our life. Our life is made up of a series of events that it's impossible for us to always evaluate properly what is good and what is bad or what is uh, difficult and what is not difficult in these moments. Only when these pieces of the puzzle come together are we able to see the big picture of what God is doing all around us. Now, that might be illustrated in a humorous sketch I saw years ago on a great classic TV show, Hee Haw. Uh, there was a moment in this show of, um, uh, in the barber shop where the barber says to the man in the chair, he says, hey, you might've heard about the tragedy with my uncle. And he said, no, what's that? He said, well, my uncle died. And he said, that's bad. And the barber said, oh no, no, that's good. He left me $50,000. The man said, Well, that's good. He said, well, no, that's bad. Because when the IRS got finished, it was only $25,000. He said, oh, that's bad. He said, no, that's good. Because I bought an airplane with that. He said, well, that's good. He said, no, that's bad. Because I was flying it the other day. And I flew it upside down. And I fell out of the thing. And he said, well, that's bad. And he said, no, no, that's good. He said, because as I was falling, I realized there was a big haystack below me. He said, well, that's good. And he said, no, that's bad. Because as I got closer, there was a pitchfork sticking right up at me. And he said, oh, that's bad. He said, no, that's good, because I missed the pitchfork. And he said, well, that's good. He said, no, that's bad, because when I landed, I hurt my leg and I had to go to the hospital. And he said, well, that's bad. And he said, no, that, that's, that's good. He said, because uh, they took me on to the hospital, and when I got there, there was a really pretty nurse there. He said, I took a turn for the nurse while I was there. And when I took that turn for the nurse, I got to marry her. That was good. And he said, that was real good. Well, you see, it's a silly way of us saying that, but understanding that we really can't tell in our own lives, just in a single isolated moment, all the bigness of what's going on here. It is true for us that as we look at our lives being somewhat like that puzzle, and we work to put it together to begin to see what God is doing, Most likely, each of us do the same thing. We turn all the pieces of the puzzle over and then we look for those four corner pieces to help us begin the process of framing this picture. So what I wanna do in our time remaining is just I wanna share with you four corner pieces that I believe we can take away from the story of Joseph that will help us in understanding where God is at work. And the first piece I would say to you is just a reminder that God is at work in many circumstances. God is at work in many circumstances in our life, not just in one or two or just a few. In the midst of difficult times, we will often ask ourselves, what's the meaning of this circumstance? What is the meaning of this? What's the purpose of what's happening right now? Perhaps Joseph asked that question, why am I in this pit? What's the meaning of me being sold as a slave? Why is it that I did the right thing with Potiphar's wife and now my life is falling all to pieces? What I know about this is that when I spend my time focusing on my circumstance and my situation, what I've done is taken my eyes off of God. And I'm guaranteed when I focus on myself to miss the bigger picture of what God is doing. You see, those isolated pieces, without that big box top, I don't really know what's going on. Perhaps you recall the story from Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is seeking to be faithful in fulfilling the Great Commission, uh, fulfilling this intention to go into the world and take the gospel to all the nations. And there are two cities that he is attempting to go to. And both times the Holy Spirit prevents him from going into this city in order to proclaim the gospel. That seems like that doesn't make sense. And by itself, that's like, that's a terrible thing. Until you continue reading the story and you realize that it is then that God gives Paul a vision of this man from Macedonia pleading for him to come over and give them help to bring them the gospel. You see, God was at work in this circumstance of closing a door. He was at work in this circumstance of closing another door. And he was at work in this circumstance of opening this door for the spread of the gospel. God is at work in many circumstances. And not only is that true, but it's also true that God is at work in many people's lives. So the second corner piece would be that our temptation is not just to ask God, what's the purpose, but why is this happening to me? And sometimes we act as if we are the center of our own universe and we forget that it's not about us. And in that journey, it's important for us to recognize that God is not only working in my life, but He's also working in the lives of other people. In this story, God was working in the life of Jacob, the father of Joseph, from the time that he had this moment of incredible grief to the time there was a great reunion of the family. God was doing some things in the life and the heart of Joseph, not just uh, of Jacob, not just of Joseph. God was also at work in the lives of the brothers. Think about the guilt that these men had carried with them through the years. They sold their brother into slavery. And for all of these years, they have no idea what's happened to him. They're carrying this with them. As you read the story and as it unfolds, you begin to understand that it's in that journey that God brings them face to face with their own understanding of their sin, of their wrongdoing. They need to acknowledge what they have done. They also need to receive the forgiveness of their brother. God's at work in the lives of a lot of people, not just in my life, and it's important for me to recognize that. The book of Acts records another interesting story of a man named Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. He The is, life is taken from him simply because he publicly proclaims the gospel and it might be easy for some to think that those people who carried his body to his tomb to be discouraged and to think what a fruitless life what a waste what a tragedy and yet when we continue to read the rest of the story what we find is that there was another person that God was at work in their life there was a man a young Pharisee by the name of Saul the Bible says that he was watching over the coats of those who were throwing the stones at Stephen and taking his life. No doubt in this moment, Paul Saul hears the gospel proclaimed by Stephen, and God uses that to till the soil of his heart because it will not be long until he will come face to face with Jesus, and his life will be transformed. His name will be changed from Saul to Paul. He's going to become an evangelist, a missionary, a church planter. He's going to be used by God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see... If we just look at the moment of Stephen's life, we might say tragedy, but if we back up and look at the bigger picture, we see that Stephen became a significant part of the conversion of Paul. When we look at this story of of Joseph, um, we we recognize that not only is God working through people's uh, circumstances and people's lives, but he's also working to accomplish many purposes. There's several things that God is doing, uh, that, things that he wants to accomplish in the lives of the people in this story. God is bringing about reconciliation. Uh, think about this family. There's enough dysfunction in this family to fill a number of psychology textbooks. There is favoritism. There is hatred. There is bitterness. There are plots of murder uh, that are a part of this family. Uh, there's deceit. There is separation. This family is fractured. If you think your family's messed up, just read about this family, okay? You're not as messed up as they were. And yet in the midst of this, God is at work to bring about some specific consequences that he wants to bring about. And he reunites this family in an amazing way in the end of this story. There are other consequences that he's bringing about. He's growing some people up. You remember the brothers who hated Joseph for being the favorite brother? As you continue to see this story develop, now they are defending Benjamin, the younger brother who is born into that family, and they are defending him as the favorite. Joseph, who was once this impatient guy who didn't know how to use the gift that God had given him so fully and so well, has now matured to a place where he recognizes that God wants him to use the gifts that he's given him for his glory. He's now advising the Pharaoh. We need to be patient. For seven years, we need to methodically, systematically save and save and save. And then for seven years, we're going to need to ration and be careful about the distribution of all of this grain. This one who was so impatient is now counseling others to be patient. God is bringing about a variety and many consequences in the lives of the different people who are in this story. But the last corner piece I would say to you that is important for us to recognize is that God is at work shaping us more and more to be like Jesus. There's a significant parallel in this passage of Scripture between Joseph and Jesus. There's there's a pattern of Jesus in the life of Joseph. We see some things taking place here when we look at this story. We see that there is this principle of of humility that comes before honor. That's how the writer of Proverbs says it, that before honor comes humility. Humility so that was true in their lives. Jesus was very clear when he talked to the disciples. He said, it's important, it is necessary that the Son of Man will suffer. Three times in Mark's gospel, he told the disciples, we're going into Jerusalem and the Son of Man will suffer. He will be killed. He will be buried and three days later, he'll rise again. Jesus knew that he was going to suffer on the behalf of you and of me. See, it's a reminder to us that our lives are going to contain moments and spots that are going to be very dark, they're also going to contain moments that are going to be very bright and filled with light. Our lives are not free of hardships. It's true that there are going to be moments of joy and there are going to be moments of suffering in our life. It was true in the life of Jesus. It was true in the life of Joseph. And it will be true in our lives as well. See, there are these parallels. Look at this chart that just shows these comparisons between Jesus And Joseph. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. They were both mistreated. They were both sold for pieces of silver. They both involved forgiveness. Joseph forgave his brothers. Jesus forgave those who executed him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Joseph suffered so that his family would live. Jesus suffered so that we might live. Jesus died so that we might live. With him in eternity. See, ultimately, God really is more concerned about making you more and more like Christ. In this story, there are dreamers, there are several dreamers, there are three or four, four dreamers in this story, there are schemers in this story, people that are plotting to help bring those dreams to an end. But there's only one redeemer. And his name is Jesus. He was the son of promise ultimately. That through Abraham, through his lineage, God was preserving this family so ultimately the Messiah, Jesus, would be born. He would come and live a sinless life and he would die for you and for me. I believe that the New Testament version of this story is found in the Apostle Paul's writings in Romans chapter 8. Where Romans 8, Paul says that we know that God works together in all things for good. For those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he did foreknow, he did predestine to become conformed to the image of his son, that we might become the firstborn among many brethren. I don't know all that that verse of scripture means, and we don't have time to unpack it all today, but what I can tell you is that that passage of scripture means that if you're a follower of Jesus, that God has already set you on a course and a destination of Christ-likeness. He is shaping you and molding you more and more into the image of christ I think this message today shows us that God really is at work in many, many places. The greatest place that we see the work of God is in the cross. It was in the cross that he took these evil, those evil individuals who crucified Jesus, and he brought out of it the forgiveness of my sin and your sin, the opportunity for us to be redeemed, to be brought back, to be reunited with him. For those who would call upon him and those who would trust in Christ, he gives us every opportunity To know God. Joseph and Jesus both remind us that pain in the hands of God is better than comfort apart from Him. We have the opportunity to walk with God today. And this story of Joseph reminds us that God really is at work in our world. Even when we don't like our circumstances, we can trust God in the middle of those. I recognize today there are people in this room, in a room this size, there are people that are going through hardships, that are going through difficulties, that are suffering in some way or another, or that may be experiencing some kind of injustice of something that should not be happening to you. I want to encourage you today with the story of Joseph to remember that as we seek to frame our lives in this bigger picture and recognize that God is at work even in those difficult moments. So I want to encourage you today to be careful. Be careful not to be too quick to judge a moment for how terrible it is or how great it is, for you don't know all that that moment contains. You see, God really is working through these other circumstances in your life. You can trust Him. He's weaving together this this, uh, beautiful tapestry that'll be a masterpiece He's going to use those dark times, those darkest spots, those darkest colors to bring out the most brilliant, the most brilliant moments of your life. He's going to bring those out and shine those for his glory. That's what God will do in the end in this big picture. So if you don't know Jesus today, I want to also invite you to consider with me that God might have orchestrated these moments to bring you here to this place so that you might hear the gospel that you might come to understand God's love for you, Christ's sacrificial death for you, giving you the opportunity, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, for you to be able to have life eternal. However it is, whatever it is, that your circumstances and your situations are that you face today, I want to encourage you to recognize that trusting God is your greatest opportunity today. Let's pray. Our Father, what a blessing it is for us to be able to just look and recall, reflect on the life of this man, Joseph. God, of what it is that you used him to accomplish for your purposes. Father, I pray that even in this moment would be our commitment to you to surrender ourselves to you anew and afresh. God, that you would use us for your glory and for your purposes. I pray, Father, for any person who might be in our midst who does not know you. God, who is separated from you, I pray that they would come to see, uh, that you would open their eyes to help them see the hope that is found in the gospel. I pray, God, that they might call upon Christ, that they would be saved in this moment. Father, would you uh, help each of us to be encouraged this day that you are at work around us. Give us eyes to see where you're at work, ears to hear what you have to say to us, and God, hearts, hearts, that are willing to obey everything that you lead us to do. For it's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen.